Coronavirus took away the NCAA tournament, the Masters, and the NBA playoffs this spring. Now it turns its eyes to the more distant future, where it hopes to impact fall sports. The NFL intends to march on as initially planned, but the intercollegiate athletics cash cow college football looks like its season might be next in the crosshairs. How should departments react to these uncertain circumstances? And how long can college athletics survive without their primary source of revenue? Find out in episode 16 of Stone Cold Sports Talk. Thank you all for being here, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Luke Stone, joined as always by associate editors Taft Gant and Jay Banzett. Boys, uh, first of all, how are you all holding up right now? Doing pretty well. Um, trying to get outside a decent amount. I uh, just had a couple of Zoom calls this morning uh, for school, but overall, pretty well in the Banzett household. Taft? Yeah, I thought that no sports would be devastating from the start, but um, I've managed to survive thanks to a lot of reruns on TV, uh, like past broadcasts on YouTube and other sports sources like that. And I've really come to appreciate uh, sports and not take them for granted any longer because we've gone now a month without them. Absolutely. I really liked how different TV networks have put – like right now, for example, or like right before this call, I was watching the Ravens Bills like football game, and there's just like constant like switching up the games, and there's like always something on to watch that like necessarily you didn't catch because it's like a regional game or whatever. But now it's on like national TV, and so everybody can watch it. And so I've been a really big. I already do that on YouTube a lot, like during the regular school year. But I'm a really big fan of having it like accessible on TV you now. And you're an even bigger fan of uh, sending me Snapchat videos that. Um, you know, the, the wee hours of the morning, you know, 1245, one o'clock watching Florida lose to LSU or Florida on a, Georgia. On a, on a flip fake field goal, yes. <laughs> um, Fantastic game. Speaking of, uh, of college football, we've got a season that seems so far in the future. I mean, four months from now, it'll be August 9th, which is still a full 20 days, three weeks before the uh, scheduled start of the uh, college football regular season. I know that some of the week zero games this year include a trip abroad, which seems like the most uh, unfathomable thing in the world right now. I think Notre Dame is playing Navy in Dublin, or at least they're planning on doing so. And uh, other teams are gearing up to get ready for uh, week zero of, on August 29th. But of course, the real reason that college football finds itself being in jeopardy right now, or at least the scheduled start of its season in jeopardy, is because to get a season going, you need there's a lot that goes into getting a season ready. The guys don't show up the week before and practice like they would um, for a game mid-season. Uh, spring ball has already been canceled. At, I think every division once spring, spring ball was canceled in its entirety everywhere. Yeah, it was canceled around the country. Summer ball is being pushed back or altered as schools <clears throat> move their summer classes online through uh, some places June 30th, other places August, uh, July 31st. So basically the best case scenario for a lot of teams is coming back in uh, in mid-July and getting going for the season. Jay, how do you think the timeline is going to change um, given kind of where the trajectory of the virus looks like it's going to be uh, right now? It's going to be really hard for freshmen coming in, especially ones who programs are expecting a lot out of. Uh, so those five stars, those four stars that they're going to expect to at least be able to play a serviceable role early. They have to learn, yes, 
they can be sent a virtual playbook and like online and email or whatever in a PDF form. But to experience college football, the speed of the game uh, for the first time being in mid July, late summer, sometimes even early August compared to spring ball that we, that just got canceled. Um, the speed of the game is going to be really hard for them to adjust to. Um, but overall, just freshmen as a whole, uh, regardless of position, they have to learn the whole playbook in a in an extremely short amount of time compared to guys who are coming back who already know what they're doing in each of their schemes. So the freshmen are going to have a really hard time. And then quarterbacks, who, what made Joe Burrow and his receivers so tight and so talented last year is they spent ten like they got each got ten thousand catches over the summer throwing to each other at LSU, and now that's just out of the question. So just relationships between players and players knowing the playbooks and schemes of each team are going to be extremely haltered. And then, of course, the other side of it is that uh, for a lot of – there are a lot of freshmen who have enough credits to graduate their high schools early and can go and actually be enrolled and be involved in spring ball with um, a lot of these programs. I know that's common at a lot of huge Power 5 schools to have your freshmen coming in and participating. And without that, um, the mental side of the game for uh, – top tier division one athlete is typically not the weak point. Most of those guys are, are mentally strong enough that they can get a playbook the second week of June. And if they have to show up for, um, if they have to show up for summer ball on August 1st, the first day that campus is back open for um, students and team activities, then they'll be fine. But the other side, it's just hard to replicate um, the strength and conditioning regimen uh, regimen that most teams go through uh, during the early summer. It's just going to be hard to replace that with so little time. And then, of course, the other uh, side of things here is the economic impact of it. Um, Taff, what do you think – how long do you think our college football programs and college athletic departments are going to wait uh, to give themselves uh, the time they need to get the infrastructure in place to have a season uh, in terms of just being able to have people at the games and get the, the broadcast schedule set? How early do you think – or how much earlier will college football have to make this call than other sports have so far? Well, they're definitely going to have to give the programs at least a month together, um, whether that's through workouts or training or just walk-through practices because you can't just get on the field a week into practice and say, all right, play a game. That's how it works in some high schools. And, Jay, as you know, that's not easy. And colleges certainly can't do that just because on the playbooks are so complicated. So I'd say – you have to have – teams have to be together for at least a month to two months before they can first step on the field to play their first game. And that could mean that they're not playing in the non-conference schedule um, in September like we were expecting. Um, but it's definitely going to be hard for teams to adjust to the shortened schedule. Um, and I think all athletic directors and all coaches and all players will be willing to – sacrifice a few weeks or even months of their preseason um, if it means that they can be on the field playing in front of their fans sooner. And there's more than one side of this, uh, of this piece. It's not just the players getting ready um, for a football games and for the football program. Obviously football programs are the biggest revenue generators, um, or at least for the schools that have them. They're the biggest revenue generators of their departments. They are often the reason that, um, sports that don't bring in revenue that are either revenue negative or revenue neutral are allowed to exist because the football contracts that come in with the conferences um, and all of the money that it, they generate from ticket sales, usually that's uh, only applies to 
bigger SEC, bigger SEC, Big 12 schools with 100,000 fans and um, with the booster support that they get. But that college football is the engine that keeps college athletics alive. Obviously, the people like to ter- look at the NCAA tournament because it's the NCAA's biggest revenue generator. But college football is not tied as closely to the NCAA. The college football playoff is entirely separate. There is no NCAA Division I um, officially sanctioned football champion because of the unique nature of the playoff and uh, conference championships and the, the TV contracts being with the conferences uh, rather than with uh, the NCAA at large. So this is going to be – the real thing to watch here is, is whether or not um, – or how, how willing athletic departments are to let college athletes, uh, college football players um, hit the field in September because for a lot of them, the paychecks they're getting from those early season games, just imagine that you're a smaller, um, a smaller school from you know, a mid-major conference. Imagine that you're in the MAC or um, maybe the Sun Belt or something like that, and your early season schedule involves you, um, if you're in the MAC, going to Columbus and just getting slaughtered by Ohio State to the uh, – <laughs> to the grins of 100, 105, 110,000 uh, screaming Buckeye fans, or if you're a team like Troy that was supposed to go to uh, Tiger Stadium two years ago, or three years ago now, I guess, and uh, get slaughtered by LSU on their homecoming, but ended up uh, dropping that game. But the thing is, those games bring in million-dollar, million-and-a-half-dollar checks uh, to those programs, and if those are gone with the non-conference schedule, the Power Five will probably walk out of this okay, but the problem is for those, um, for those smaller schools where – you know, like a Bowling Green that Urban Meyer started at. All those schools where you see these young coaches getting their starts are the ones who um, they're not making. Urban Meyer wasn't making uh, four million dollars his first year at Bowling Green. He's making somewhere in the six figures because without those checks, they can't afford to pay a lot of those people and a lot of that personnel. And more importantly, all of the other sports they have um, get all the other sports they have depend on football bringing in some of that revenue. Um, one athletics administrator said uh, in Sports Illustrated the other day when asked, about, um, when asked about college football and what it all kind of looks like this fall with, um, with the virus said, quote, we're all effed. There is no other way to look at this, is there? Um, I just want to get your, both of your reactions to that, uh, to that quote and that story. It's a big thing. Whenever like, a football game is going on, that's like the highlight of some students – Oh, from a student like, experience perspective, that is sometimes the highlight of their entire fall semester is the six home games that they get, get to go to. It's like you just get to scream for three hours and have fun with all your friends and that. And so from a student perspective, having no football going on essentially takes away one of, well, depending on the person, one of, if not like the biggest like fun factor that they have. Like, let's be honest, a whole, a whole bunch of people go to Alabama just to go watch a dominant football team play six times a year and just smoke teams um, throughout the fall. And so just there's that. And then just the whole, what was it? Football at, I just read something. Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, The Carnegie foundation reported that at the university of Alabama's one year total receipts, were $150,000, so that's incoming revenue, of which $72,000 came from football, so it's just under half, and over $60,000 came from a single postseason game, uh, which was, this was uh, the 08-09 season, or the 09-10 season when they won the national championship at the Rose Bowl, so that was just a tick under half of the entire athletics department's money came, that was 10 years ago too, so it came from football. Um, Ticket sales? 
just the whole program yeah. revenue, you know, so ticket sales. Um, so it's just not having football. It's the student experience is affected. The whole campus vibe is affected. Um, just think about what Auburn does when they roll the corner or whatever they call it, where they throw all the toilet paper. That's like the fun, the most fun thing that they do in the entire fall and not having that and not having the money to support other fall teams like men's soccer and cross country and all these different things that really can't stay afloat by themselves. Um, they give a whole lot of people opportunities to go play college sports. I'll, they don't, they're not necessarily on scholarship. They still get an opportunity to continue their sport for four years. It just, like you said, F's up, um, all those opportunities. Yeah, Stone, could you repeat that quote one more time? Uh, the quote was from – I was trying to think of who it was from, and I figured out that um, it was Sports Illustrated enlisted as a Power 5 athletic director um, who wished to remain anonymous. We're all F's. There's no other way to look at this, is there? Yeah, there really is no other way to look at it, especially from a revenue standpoint. If you're looking at looking at it by the numbers – this is LSU athletics budget by sport from the year 2017 to 2018. So just two years ago and only three sports bring in revenue and that's football, obviously who brought in over $55 million that year. And then baseball and men's basketball who brought in a combined around $600,000 and all the other sports at LSU lost lost money for the program and because football brought in so much money they still had a gain of just under eight million dollars that year so without football they really universities really are in trouble because that would cost millions upon millions of dollars um and especially for big sec schools like lsu I don't know how you'd be able to go on for the rest of the year and play winter sports and spring sports if this is all over by then, but not by football season. And here's what, um, here's what Dan Radakovich, I think he's the athletic director at Clemson. Um, here's another quote from the SI, uh, from the SI article quote, industry executives are already creating contingency plans for a nuclear fall of no football at Clemson. For instance, Dan Radakovich has commissioned a handful of associates to investigate the what ifs calling it a disaster preparedness committee. I don't know what we've named it, he says, because I don't have an acronym for do. This is the athletic director at Clemson. The, he's won two national championships in the last five years in football and in theory should be one of the best positioned uh, athletic programs in the entire country for a situation like this. And even he's terrified by the prospect of just one season without the revenue from football. Um, and it just goes to show that as all of these schools continue in this arms race of sorts for recruiting by building all these new facilities with massage tables and pool tables and Xbox rooms and saunas and hot tubs and Live at Clemson and nap rooms and all that fancy. Yeah. Stuff. All of the, yeah. Like, you know, basically they're building the Tom Brady hyperbaric chamber. He sleeps in, but for a hundred players, um, those schools, you don't just pay for that. You don't just pay for that. Money doesn't grow in trees enough for all of that to be covered. I mean, obviously a lot of it is from, fundraising from boosters and whatnot, but you're still assuming you're going to have revenue from football to pay for some of the advancements itself. That's not to say the fundraising piece at a school like Clemson um, isn't incredible, but I was at the Florida Florida State game this year where they unveiled the new training facility they're building and along with the new baseball stadium. Those things, yes, a lot of them are built on the generosity of um, donors and boosters, but 
you use that you use that donor and booster money to pay for those things because you assume that football will pay for itself and pay for literally everything else. Um, and it's just it's not college athletics are not in a position for a situation like this. Um, so obviously we are so so many months out, um, and there are so many different solutions on the table. So let's assume that most stay-at-home orders are lifted by July first. Where are you? What, before July first. <laughs> uh, let's assume the last state in the country lifts, lifts its stay-at-home order on July first. Um, what do you guys think? If the season does have to get shortened in some capacity and they can't get their full summer regimen in, which is what it's looking like right now, with I think Ohio State is doing no in-person summer classes right now, um, so everything through July 31st is canceled. Um, other schools are canceling their first half, like their summer A programming through June 30th, and then from there moving on. Um, so if players can't aren't allowed to be on campus until July, what do you all think the start of the season and the flow of the season uh, should look like? I think that if they can come back in July, the program should be able to start as planned. The first game or the first week of games is – August 29th and there's only a handful of games that week and then the next two weekends are when all teams will have their opening days but really that would give teams two two months to practice and train and I think that given the circumstances that should be enough. Rex Ryan, Rex Ryan said it perfectly yesterday on or recently on Get Up he's like it's football. They are football players. They're, they don't just miraculously forget how to play football. It's like it's the same game that they've been playing, well, for me since I was seven, but for a bunch of kids since they were at least ten years old, it's the same game. Uh, but the problems occur if, like, a new coaching staff is coming in and they have to put in a whole different system of things. Um, then you've got problems for misconfusion. You have to learn a whole new, like, essentially just program, basically, um, in that shortened time frame, but for the vast majority of, uh, of schools keeping their head coach and the vast majority of their coaching staff, all they have to do is just get these new guys up to speed, and they, they should be fine. I mean, we at Woodbury, we got a we had our first game after two weeks of practice last year. We had a, a scrimmage after one and a game after two, so it can be done. Um, but if, especially for those schools bringing in new coaching staffs, expect especially early in the season play calls and just schemes to be ultra vanilla and basic and just not have too much creativity in them. Um, but other, other than that, it, it's not, we're not asking them to play a different sport and try and prepare for something that they haven't done. They've been doing this for a while. They were recruited because they were the best of the best in high school doing this. So they're obviously talented doing it. Um, and they're obviously mentally capable of doing it too. So um, just the biggest, if the coaching staff, change has happened then there could be some challenges but overall it's it shouldn't be unless it's like two or three weeks to prepare instead of like a month that every team should be able to prepare with uh at least a month it should be if you can't do that then you've got bigger problems but um just everything you're not reinventing the wheel basically you're not asking them to play a different sport i think the biggest i think you're right if everything is done by july 1st and they can come back july 1st somehow at some schools, and I think it should proceed as planned. Um, I think the problem is that there are a lot of administrators who were forced to make decisions about August, or who were forced to make decisions about July and the last week of March. Uh, and that is that put a lot of um, 
that put a lot of college campuses in this really awkward spot where they saw their peers canceling summer classes before we had even before all the modeling had been updated to round down the death estimates and all of these things for coronavirus. Um, I think you're right. I think the season can proceed as planned. And I think that there are going to be a lot of, uh, there are going to be a lot of athletic directors who for fear of not being able to generate revenue are going to want to keep the, uh, the schedule as initially planned. Now, the other thing to consider here, of course, is that the infrastructure you need to, have a game and have two teams in the field is very different from the infrastructure you need to have the full weekend experience of a college football Saturday in a lot of these towns. The thing that I think um, we're not really realizing yet as a country is that until we have widespread testing in in a vaccine, vaccine, obviously we're we're still behind the curve. We're we're still behind on that because we haven't had enough uh, time to generate one. The testing piece is going to be crucial though. If we want to have fans in stadiums for the first couple of weeks in the fall. If we want to be able to um, pack these meccas of college football in Baton Rouge or Tuscaloosa or Athens or um, Clemson or uh, Columbus or uh, Ann Arbor, all of those places, if we want to have fans in those stadiums, we need to get widespread testing first. And more importantly, we need to be in a position um, where colleges feel comfortable with allowing 100, 105, 110,000 people to congregate in close quarters um, with each other. Uh, for three and a half hours on a really hot, balmy Saturday afternoon. Uh, And I think that that's the piece that isn't being considered enough yet. The the checkpoints we need to meet um, with combating this virus for having sports period and having teams playing each other are so vastly different from the ones we need to meet to have essential businesses open, um, have people in restaurants and bars and in uh, arenas. And I don't know if we're going to be in, a, in that position by the end of August. And that is what's going to be um, cutting into a lot of the bottom lines. Now, the other possibility is that we get very, uh, we're very conservative in, in wanting to return to normal life and schools can't come back until August 1st. Do you guys think that would be enough time for college football programs to get off the ground and be up and running by August 29th? I think it's definitely possible. Um, one month of preparation, that would be the thing is, all these teams are in the same boat. So everyone is coming back to start practice on the same day. Everyone is going to have their game about a month later because week zero, it says on the FBS schedule is August 29th. And it's going to make it even more interesting if everyone comes back on August 1st, because we're going to be able to see not only who is the most prepared as we do every season, we're going to get to see who is the most prepared on a, limited uh time surface because teams aren't going to have the five months or whatever that they're supposed to i mean they're supposed to be reporting uh, they're supposed to be doing their spring workouts right now they're supposed to have a spring game and the fact that they're only going to have a month of preparation if that is the case um and right now that would be that would be awesome if teams could return together on august 1st um but that, i think as a college football fan that would make it very interesting it can certainly be done i mean it's not a matter of um like it's 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 essentially just preparing for a bowl game basically from the end of your regular season you have a month or three weeks or whatever it ends up being you can make drastic changes to your program in those three weeks and you can get yourself especially if it's a month you can get yourself from i'll say ground zero albeit it's never really ground zero because you always got people coming back to the program um but you can get from your summer 
uh, I guess, the state to a game state, to a game one um, preparedness, certainly in a month. I think that's um, certainly within reason. The thing that's going to be really interesting, like Taff was saying about the most prepared pieces, this is going to be a huge season, whether it goes as, as it's kind of initially scheduled or if it goes, um, maybe if the season gets pushed back a little bit and you get into the abbreviated season piece um, with teams maybe not being able to play full games until October and it's basically what the nightmare scenario is um, right now or what it looks like right now the thing you're going to see is who the best coaching staffs in the country are, because this is where any, any coach who has, um, I'm not going to say anyone can recruit, but there are a lot of coaches who can bring in elite classes. There are a lot of coaches who are not good strategic uh, coaches who are, who are not good at um, really getting their players to buy into a system who can have five stars all over the place. This is why you see people like uh, it's the same reason why you see people from schools that are maybe four and eight or five and seven, um, but getting drafted in the first round. It's because it's not difficult to find athletes um, at a lot of these places who can come in and play for your program. But this is going to be a real litmus test to see which coaches are the best at adapting to these circumstances and adapting to personnel that might be limited and generating a game plan that can help them win. Um, it's going to be a lot like watching a rookie. The early, early season is going to be a lot like watching um, a very young team in the NFL with a rookie quarterback who they're basically giving a limited playbook to because they don't know what he can handle. Um, or they're giving a limited playbook to the team because they don't know what they can handle. And I think that um, the coaches who are the best at adapting, the coaches basically who have had the most injuries in the last three seasons are the ones who are going to be best prepared for this because they can just kind of fly by the seat of their pants um, and, and basically create a game plan for personnel that might not, that's going to be in very different spots in terms of preparedness to, um, to execute uh, a game plan. Yeah, you're going to have very old lineups. You're not really going to have a, unless you've got like a Derek Stingley at LSU who just comes in day one is the best DB on your team, the best player at that position, you're going to have very old, very experienced lineups uh, to start the season. It may be less talented, but you certainly got people coming back who know what they're going to do, how they're going to do it and what they're trying to accomplish at least the first couple of weeks in the season while you're trying to get all these people caught up on the same page. And then you can play those younger kids, but especially depth, uh, is really going to be an issue early on with those younger players, not coaching staff, not feeling confident enough to put those players in the game. Um, if need be due to injury, um, you're really going to have a whole bunch of older players who know what they're doing in, in the game over a maybe more talented, but less knowledgeable guy, uh, younger guy. All right. So we're going to pivot to, uh, we're going to pivot to our, our facts or fake news segment before we wrap things up here. Um, any final words on on this and uh, about college football and its preparedness to um, get rolling up at the end of the at the end of the summer? If we're looking at if we're trying to stay positive here, I think that all of us college football fans at home can say, "Look, the nightmare scenario is no fo- no football season, but right now it's looking like we're going to have some season in some modified form. What that might be, we don't know yet, but." you can look at it like this. It's going to be the most interesting college football season, if it's played, that we have had in our lifetimes and that we will have for the rest of our lives just because of the weird circumstances that are very unprecedented. All right, so we are going to pivot to facts or fake news now, um, our, our favorite segment. We're gonna, I'm going to give you a statement you are going to tell me 
whether or not it is facts or fake news. We're going to keep most of this NFL free agency and uh, draft centric. We will begin with this. Facts or fake news, number one. Tom Brady makes the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers a 9-7 and seven football team as they are right now. Jay Van Zegg, go. That's a fact. Um, the, one, the one thing that I see Tampa Bay not being able to do next year is win the division because the Saints are ridiculous, and they just keep getting like just one bad call, one just bad thing happening uh, for three seasons in a row now, whether it be the Minnesota Miracle, you've got the Nikel Roby Coleman uh, missed pass interference call. You've got Kyle Rudolph in the end zone, possible offensive pass interference. Um, I don't think it was, but still just controversial things happening to the Saints three times in a row, and I think they're finally going to break through. But Tampa Bay can certainly get to nine wins. They've got the Panthers. That's two automatic dubs. Panthers are going to stink. Um, and then they can easily eke out seven out of the next 15 wins. Yeah. It's not going to be easy with the NFC South. Um, Panthers, yeah, they're probably not going to be as good with – a new quarterback in Teddy Bridgewater and a new coach. Um, but also they're going to have to get through the Saints and the Falcons and to get to nine wins in the NFC South is going to be tough. But I think they'll be able to do it. I mean, Tom Brady is an experienced quarterback, as we all know, but he also has guys like Chris Godwin and Mike Evans to throw the ball to. That's going to be a tough offense to stop. And I definitely think that they will get to nine wins. That's the thing. That's why I would say – Put this in perspective, Jameis Winston threw 5,100 yards in this offense last year. Jameis Winston. So we're talking about Tom Brady. There's, there's an upgrade there. So just yeah. Not as many interceptions probably. Yeah, no. probably yeah. About, uh, a sixth maybe, five. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go facts as well here. I think that uh, Brady is a, a game changer for, this, um, for the Bucs. In terms of arm talent now, he's probably as good as Jameis Winston just with, um, with throwing the ball. But you're not going to get as many boneheaded decisions from Tom Brady. He's not – He's not a high-volume interceptions guy. There's some people who their entire careers, like Brett Favre, go through it, and they are very Jameis-like in the fact that they have a couple really impressive seasons if you just look at the passing stats, but take a lot more risk for the football. Um, and if Tom Brady has weapons like Evans and Godwin, like uh, like Tav mentioned, and then on top of that has O.J. Howard at tight end, I mean, it's basically just the Evans and Godwin are probably better than – Evans and Godwin are probably better than any receiver he played with besides Julian Edelman and um, – um, and Randy Moss. And with Ed, the way Ed, huh? If Tampa can go reload their offensive line in the draft, like a, a lot of people think they will, and give him some more protection, it's it's going to be really hard to stop. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so Tom Brady, game changer in Tampa. Um, very exciting storyline to watch in the NFC South, which now has Drew Brees and Emmanuel Sanders, right? Is that happening? Um, along with, of course, Michael Thomas. And then, of course, uh, the um, Falcons, Julio Jones, Matt Ryan, and the newly minted Todd Gurley back in Georgia. Uh, that, that'll be exciting to watch. Facts or fake news number two, Tua Tagovailoa is the, has the highest ceiling of any quarterback in this draft. Fact. He, um, he has the highest ceiling, but he also has the lowest ceiling. I think that Tua um, – What would you say? The lowest floor. Lowest floor, yes. High ceiling, lowest floor, because he's just so injury prone. We don't know what he's going to look like. And an ESPN reporter was saying the other day that he is going to be the most risky draft pick in the history of the NFL draft, just because we've seen how talented he can be and how good he can be. But also, if he is injured, that could just be a bust draft pick. 
So I think that if he is healthy, um, he's going to be a really good NFL quarterback. So he does have the highest ceiling in this quarterback draft class, um, especially higher than Joe Burrow, who's the predicted number one overall pick. I'm going to go fake news here, and you're going to be very surprised. You watch Jordan Love throw a football. I'm not a fan of him right now, honestly. He, I just looked up his stats against LSU. He was 15 of 30 for 166 yards and three picks. Not great. But when you watch him play from 2018 when he had 32 touchdowns, six picks at Utah State to this past year, he lost nine other starters on the offense. So that's line, receivers, running backs, everything. He played really, really well, and he – had Patrick Mahomes-esque characteristics to him, whether he can move on the run and throw from different platforms with different arm angles. He's got the lowest, like, he's the fourth best right now, and it's going to take a whole lot to get him to that high ceiling, but it can be done, and honestly, I don't know if it's even going – it's probably not going to happen – but just based on what he can do with his body right now, the he threw 17 picks last year. Three came on three came on hail marys, and four came off of his own receiver's hands. Um, and that's coming on or coming off of a team where he lost nine starters on his offense. So I don't think it's going to happen. But he's got an incredibly high ceiling that may be on par with Tua's and certainly with Joe Burrow's. I'm going to say I'm with Taft. I think facts to what has the highest ceiling in the draft. Um, and that's, that's not to say, that's not to say Joe Burrow isn't, um, isn't capable, but I think that Joe Burrow at his very, very best is an unbelievably good quarterback um, who can, he's just, he's an accurate throw of the football, but Tua Tagovailoa is much more of a game changing quarterback than Burrow is. It's important to remember. And I know Tua had no lack of weapons this year, but, Joe Burrow was made considerably better this season than last because of the fact that um, Justin Jefferson and Thaddeus Moss uh, were as great as they were this year. And it's going to be, if he ends up going to Cincinnati, I just think he's stuck in a, he's stuck in a really, he's got AJ green, but other than that, he's stuck in a really bad spot with a really bad offensive line. For a number one overall pick, he's yeah he's got a pretty good spot with AJ Green and Joe Mixon, an improving offensive line with first round pick Jonah Williams coming back off of season season ending injury last year that uh, left tackle out of Alabama coming back for his first full healthy season. It's not bad. It's certainly not great uh, situation to come into, but it's not it's not bad. I think Tua's if Tua goes to Miami, and I have totally flipped on the Dolphins or as an organization the last three years. I don't know what they were thinking waiting as long as they did to hire Brian Flores, but the moves the Dolphins have made in free agency are putting them in a position where if they, if they catch the right break, they're probably a seven or eight win football team. And in the AFC East, who knows? Who, who knows? knows? In- you, you, right now the favorite is the Buffalo Bills. Just, just think about that with Josh Allen at quarterback. So you have no idea what's going what's going on in the AFC East. I mean, it could just be, it's going to be a very, very exciting. Um, it's going to be a very, very exciting race for the AFC East. All right, final facts or fake news? We will have three of last year's college football playoff teams back in again this year. Well, we know Clemson's going to go back. That's pretty much a guarantee because of how bad the ACC is. Um, LSU is a big, big question because you don't know what you're going to get with Miles Brennan replacing Joe Burrow. 
and they they're losing so many people. Clyde yeah. Edwards, Thaddeus Moss, Justin Jefferson, like the entire offensive line. Um, yeah, LSU is not. And defenders. the way the college football playoff is, you have to win the SEC to make it, unless you go undefeated until the SEC championship game. And I can't see LSU doing either of those things. So I said they're out. So and you're going to like me saying this. I think Florida's got a serious chance because they're what they're. Think about it: Georgia, LSU, Alabama, all three replacing quarterbacks. I Florida, forgot Jake Fromm was Florida, there. Florida gets <laughs> Florida gets. Think about it, Florida gets LSU at home, right? Yep. They get Georgia neutral site with a new quarterback who's played in the ACC who hadn't played in a whole lot of big games. And then outside of that, I don't think they have a really tough non-conference. So all they have to do is win the East. And we're in Florida State. They just got to be Georgia and then a crappy Florida State team. Yes, they honestly, I don't, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Florida. Mm. Here's they'll, find, they'll find a way to screw it up. I know because we've talked about it for four years, but they've got it. They've, I don't know. They'd probably be because who's who's Bama going to play at quarterback? To his younger brother, Mac Jones, right? Yeah, they'll go with Mac Jones probably. Mac Jones. Mac Jones reminds me a lot of uh, John Parker Wilson, yep. where I just feel like it's going to be a team that's surprisingly in the top five and then loses in the SEC championship to someone. Um, As a uh, UGA class of 2024, don't sleep on Jamie Newman. I think that he will be better than Jake Fromm, um, even in his one year at Georgia. Just wow. look at it. 6'4, 229. All right. Um, Jake Fromm. <laughs> I love him, but he did not do that great with offense in his last season with Georgia. He's going to have George Pickens to throw the ball to and Zamir White to hand it off. Georgia's going to be hard to stop on offense. And look at their defense. I mean, they had the number one defense last year, and they were turning most of their guys. Okay. So don't, don't get too excited on Florida. they got to get through the SEC East, which also has Tennessee and Kentucky, who are going to be pretty good this year too. Kentucky, I don't think, will be a Tennessee candy. Jamie Newman's also the guy that put three points up on Clemson last year. Um, my take on this, uh, on answering the question, which both of you managed to artfully dodge, I'm saying facts three of those teams are back next year. In any conference, Ohio State, yeah. State is going to be legit. Yeah, Ohio State is going to be insane. Clemson's always going to make it. And Oklahoma finds a way to squeak in at four, and then, um, except for the year that they were good and then lost to Georgia. Uh, and then Oklahoma probably squeaks in. I, I have not seen anything from Texas that makes me think they're going to challenge them, and that's the only team I can see in the Big 12 making a run for its money, unless Kansas in its second year with Les Miles just totally shocks the world. God bless. I'm, I'm, throwing, this in, I'm throwing that in for, uh, for Mr. Geiger to listen to and have some hope. Um, all right. So that is all for this episode 16 of the Stone Cold Sports Talk podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, a lot of uncertainty out in the world right now. We hope that you are staying safe. Uh, and if the longer you stay inside, the more likely we are to have college football and the NFL in the fall. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.